Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 84. Last week, I covered the lampstand found in the tabernacle. You will sometimes, well, actually mostly see this referred to as the menorah. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the next thing in Exodus, the tabernacle itself. And with that, let's get started. According to the Old Testament, the tabernacle, literally in Hebrew, is the dwelling place, meaning the place where God lived, or at least chose to live when he was with the Israelites. You'll sometimes see it referred to as the tent of meeting, and even more rarely as the tent of congregation. After the Exodus and the events on Sinai, it was the portable earthly dwelling place at least until after the 40 years of desert wandering, the crossing of the Jordan, and the conquest in Canaan. In fact, according to the text, the tabernacle would be used until Solomon built the first temple, the one that commonly bears his name, over 400 years later, which is all generally known, but doesn't really tell us anything about the actual building. And to call it a building is being a bit generous, As the name suggests, it was really a tent, constructed of four woven layers of curtains supported by 48 15-foot-tall standing wood boards. The acacia wood boards were covered with gold. These boards would be held in place by bars that passed through gold loops, so fabric, wood, and precious metal. The wood likely was from the trees encountered in the desert travels, like I covered a few episodes ago. And the gold and silver was, um, given to the Israelites as they departed Egypt. So, the tabernacle was partly a portable fabric tent, and the other part a wooden enclosure draped with tin curtains. Curtains dyed the colors of indigo, purple, and scarlet. It had a rectangular perimeter fence of fabric poles and staked cords. This rectangle was always set up facing to the east when the Israelite tribes would camp so oriented in that direction. And why was this? Well, the east side had no wooden wall. In the center of this enclosure was a rectangular sanctuary draped with goat hair curtains, with the roof made from the skin of rams. According to Exodus, beginning in chapter 25, and running through chapter 40, the interior of the tent was divided into different rooms. Inside the curtain was the cube-shaped inner room, the famed Holy of Holies. In this room was the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat. Obviously, this was the room that mattered most. The Holy of Holies was separated from the other parts of the tent by a curtain. In this other part of the tent, which you'll sometimes see called the sanctuary, was the lampstand, the table of the bread of presence, and the golden altar of incense. Beyond this sanctuary was an enclosure that contained the sacrificial altar and bronze fixture for the priests to wash themselves prior to entry. Exodus 36 provides so much detail concerning the tent. Instead of quoting essentially the whole chapter, I'll pull out the most interesting parts. For the tent, there were ten curtains made of fine twisted linen with blue, purple, and crimson yarns and cherubim skillfully woven into them. 
Each curtain was 28 cubits long, so 42 feet, or almost 13 meters. And they were all 4 cubits wide, so 6 feet, or just under 2 meters. And that's a big curtain, over 240 square feet. And even more impressive when you consider they were completely made by hand. Now to be clear, the weaving of wool is thought to have been invented around 2000 BC, so well before the exodus, but the loom was still a couple of hundred years away. So all woven by hand, tin curtains, each larger than rooms in many modern houses. Once the curtains were done, five of the tin were joined together, and the other five were done the same. So now there were two very large curtains, on the outside of each of the large curtains were 50 blue loops, through which the wooden poles would pass. Then the two large curtains were held together by 50 golden clasps, forming one extremely large, essentially 2,500 square foot curtain, larger than most houses. But we're not done with the curtains. There were 11 goat hair curtains that formed the tent. Each was 30 cubits long by 4 cubits wide. This is 45 feet by 6 feet. Another 250 square feet. In metric, almost 14 meters by just under 2 meters. All of these were joined together with bronze loops to form one large piece of fabric. The goat hair tent was then covered with tanned ram skins and an outer covering of fine leather. And I don't quite understand the difference between the ram skin and the leather, but to the Israelites, they were different enough to be listed separately. Acacia wood boards that were 15 feet are about 4.5 meters long and 27 inches or 68 centimeters wide. The tabernacle would have 20 of these boards on both its south and north sides, meaning this wall was about 45 feet or 14 meters. Under each of these boards was a silver base, two for each board. The west side of the tabernacle was six boards wide, so about 12 and a half feet or four meters, a very long, narrow rectangle. Then there were bars of acacia wood, five on each side of the tabernacle. These bars would pass through the loops on the boards, essentially securing them into place. All of the boards and bars were overlaid with gold. In the corners were gold-covered acacia wood pillars, better thought of as columns, which held up the first curtains, the blue, purple, and crimson ones, the curtains with the cherubim woven into them. Each column had gold hooks securing the colorful curtains to them, and they were set in silver bases. Finally, the east side of the tent was open, having no acacia wood boards. Instead, there was a screen over the entrance, made of the same fine blue, purple, and crimson yarns, twisted together and embroidered with needlework. The whole thing was assembled by Bezuel and Oholiab, along with an unnamed and unnumbered amount of other skilled workers. Thinking back a few episodes, it was Bezuel who constructed the Ark. He was from the tribe of Judah. Oholiab assisted him with the tabernacle and was from the tribe of Dan. He is listed in Exodus as essentially making, or at least was in charge of the workers who made all of the fabric. While the text is not explicit, 
it does imply that Bazuel was in charge of the wood and metalworking and probably managed the entire project. It was first erected the first day of the first month, likely a year after the exodus. But the tabernacle wasn't just about the tent. There was also the courtyard. It was surrounded by a screen, similar to what was on the east side of the tent. The text calls them the hangings of the court and gives their dimensions as 100 cubits long on both the north and south sides, so 150 feet or 46 meters, and made of fine linen. No mention is made of the height. The screen was held up by 20 pillars, and each pillar had a bronze base and hooks and bands made from silver. The east and west sides were smaller, 75 feet or 23 meters long with 10 pillars. The west side was fully covered and the east side had a gate where the priest would enter. The linen on the east side at the gate was adorned with embroidery of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen. Then we're given one final construction detail. It was all held together, both the tabernacle and the courtyard presumably the wooden pieces, by bronze pegs. The description is found in several parts of the text of the Old Testament, parts that are sometimes in conflict. While there are many theories concerning how the conflicting text ended up in the same document, the important consideration is that the tent existed for over 400 years and was set up and taken down an innumerable number of times. So, things could have changed. And, considering that for Christians, whose method of worship no longer resembles the Old Testament instructions, the actual placement of the holy objects and other considerations isn't as important as it was some 3,000 years ago. Numbers chapter 1 lays out many rules regarding the tent, from the text. You shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the covenant, and over all of its equipment, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all of its equipment, and they shall tend it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, meaning to be moved, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The other Israelites shall camp in their respective regimental camps by companies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the covenant, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the Israelites. And the Levites shall perform the guard duty of the tabernacle of the covenant. End quote. Do note that the tent of meeting was surrounded on all sides by the encamped Levites to keep everyone else away. Later in the same book, we see that people afflicted with the Zarata skin disease were not permitted to enter the tabernacle. Some translations, including all three I use for the podcast, translate Zarata as leprosy. And I know I've mentioned it before, but when the Bible speaks of leprosy, it's not what we think of. Well, not exclusively what we think of. In those days, before the advent of germ theory and modern medical practices, the term was used far more broadly than what we use it for. Today, it's understood to be a contagious bacterial infection that presents on the skin 
but also affects the nervous and respiratory systems, and sometimes the eyes. Leprosy, as we know, understand, and classify it, while contagious, is still relatively hard to spread from person to person. The situation was quite different 3,000 years ago. Uncovered written reports of leprosy date back thousands of years, obviously, since it merits a mention in Exodus. But there are various skin diseases that are translated as leprosy, and these don't only appear in Exodus, but also in ancient Indian text as early as 2000 BC, which would predate Exodus by several hundred years. Other Indian writings prohibited contact with those infected with the disease and made marriage to a person infected with leprosy punishable. So, the shunning of infected people was widespread. And this is to be expected with things that are not understood. Biblically speaking, the Hebrew word tezeroth is considered a broader classification than the narrow use of the term related to Hansen's disease, what we modernly call leprosy. Generally, in this regard, it's thought to apply to any progressive skin disease, especially ones that cause whitening or splotchy bleaching of the skin, raise manifestations of scales, scabs, infections, rashes, and the like. But it wasn't just limited to these symptoms. It also applied to non-human similar conditions like mold and surface discoloration of any clothing, leather, and even such appearances on walled surfaces in homes and other buildings. Mold and mildew. Obviously, not a disease as we understand it. But essentially, almost any sort of prolonged skin condition. Sunburn? Probably not. Eczema? Oh yeah. And so many things in between. Leviticus chapter 14 even had a so-called law of leprosy, essentially taking up the whole chapter, 1,600 words, and compare that to the 429 words of all of the Ten Commandments. The disease was a huge concern. And like so many things of that era, there were many people who believed that the disease was a result of sin, a consequence, a punishment, Throughout history, the association didn't diminish. The 6th century pope known as Gregory the Great, along with his contemporary Archbishop Isidore of Seville, considered lepers to be heretics. This belief continues in many subcultures even through today, despite our modern medical understandings. Which gets me to a specific role of the tabernacle. The door of the tabernacle marked a ritual boundary, any Israelite who had a leprous condition that healed would be presented by the priest who had confirmed his healing at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. It's implied the same would be done for articles of clothing or anything else that had become moldy and mildewy. The priest would then sacrifice a bird and let another live. After a couple of other rituals, the person would be pronounced as clean, with the whole process taking over a week. Leviticus chapter 15 also requires similar rituals with a stop at the tent of meeting for men with urinary tract infections and women with prolonged menstruations. And I'm fairly certain you never learned that in church. In Numbers chapter 25, it was at the door of the tabernacle that the population wept in sorrow 
when the men who had worshipped the Moabite deity Bela Peor, when they were sentenced to death. There were plenty of other rituals and traditions and happenings that would take place inside the tent and within the courtyard. Instead of working through them now, I'll cover them as they are presented in the text of the Old Testament, similar to the way I covered the Day of Atonement, paying particular attention to the ones still practiced in Christianity or that have morphed into modern practices. But I need to get back to the history. Later in the history found in the Old Testament, the tent makes appearances. In Joshua chapters 4 and 5, we're told of how during the conquest of Canaan, the main Israelite camp was at Gilgal. At this time, the tabernacle is thought to have been erected within the camp. Gilgal was the place where the Israelites camped after crossing the Jordan River. In Hebrew, the word likely translates to circle of stones, which really doesn't help in nailing down an exact location. But it is thought to be on the eastern border of Jericho. It was here that they erected 12 stones as a memorial to the miraculous stopping of the river when they crossed over. In this part of the Old Testament, it's assumed that whenever an encampment is mentioned, the camp includes the tabernacle. Of course, the Israelites would eventually conquer most of Canaan. The religious center was set up at Shiloh, with the tabernacle being erected there. Shiloh was located on the west bank of the Jordan River, northwest of the Dead Sea. This was in the territory allotted to Joshua, sometimes referred to as Ephraim. This was done to prevent the other tribes from fighting over the tabernacle. And remember, it was left in the care of the Levites, but as the priest, they were not allotted territory. It would remain in Shiloh for about 300 years, essentially during the period of the Judges, but other parts of the text show that it may have moved around a bit during that period. At least according to Judges chapter 20, the ark was at Bethel while Phinehas, grandson of Aaron, was still alive. And since the ark was there, it's assumed so was the tabernacle. The location thought to be Bethel isn't terribly far from Shiloh. And since it still was a tent at this time, moving it from one city to another wasn't terribly hard as long as it was only the Levites who did the moving. In another place, and if you'll think back to the episode, well, really the two episodes on the Ark, you'll remember that the golden box was seized by the Philistines, at least for a short period. But it appears they did not take the tabernacle. When the Ark was seized, King Saul had the tabernacle moved to Nob, which was close to his hometown of Gibeah. Nob is thought to have been close to Jerusalem. It was here that David and his men ate the bread from the table of the presence, which of course was located in the tent. After this, Saul would have the priest massacred. Then the first king would have the tent packed up and moved to Gibeon, which also wasn't terribly far and north of Jerusalem. It's assumed to have remained there until David, now King David, brought the ark to Jerusalem and placed it inside a tent. This is found in both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, but neither explicitly say that this tent was the tent, meaning the actual tabernacle. In fact, the next chapter in 1 Chronicles, so chapter 16, says the tabernacle remained in Gibeon. Why the two were separated is unclear. 
At the time, the tent was used for sacrificial rites. This would be the status quo for some time until Solomon had his temple built and everything brought to Jerusalem. He would use much of the tent, well, really everything in it, to furnish the new temple, essentially the Tabernacle 2.0. It's thought the tent would remain in Jerusalem until the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 587 BC. But after that, it never got mentioned again. And there's really nothing in the extra-biblical record about it. But it wasn't without influence. The synagogues built since the temple have followed the general plans laid out in Exodus, but not exactly. Every synagogue has in its front an ark, known as the Aron Kodesh, which contains the Torah scrolls. This is similar to the Ark of the Covenant, which of course contained the tablets with the Ten Commandments. In the synagogue, this is considered the holiest location, essentially equivalent to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Also in the synagogue, at least in most, is a lamp known as the Ner Tamid, which is lit during the services, near a spot similar to the position of the original menorah. At the center of the synagogue is a large elevated area, called a baima, where the Torah is read. This is similar to the tabernacle's altars where incense and animal sacrifices were offered. On primary holidays, the priests gather at the front of the synagogue to bless the congregation, as did their priestly ancestors in the tabernacle, beginning with Aaron. But synagogues are not the only buildings in the religious world inspired by the tabernacle. Many Christian cathedrals in Europe, South America, and New Zealand are built to resemble a tent, paying homage to the fabric one of Exodus. The tabernacle did get a mention in the New Testament book of Hebrews in the 8th and 9th chapters. In these passages, Paul the Apostle, the author, mentions a true tent, a perfect tent, in heaven, set up by the Lord with Jesus serving as the true high priest. Outside of Christianity, Islam has a similar structure, the Kaaba in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. Muslims believe this is the house of God. It's also at the center, literally at the center, of the Islamic world as adherents, no matter where they are on the globe, face in its direction to pray. But the Kaaba is not a tent and is instead a black marble cube. Well, really a building, open twice a year for cleaning, and thought to have been built by Abraham and Ishmael, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the history found in Exodus chapter 25. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.